the Old Testament, had his folks in the road. I don't mean to minimize David's failures by just simply referring to them as faults. That's not what I'm doing here tonight. They were painful episodes, both for David and for those who surrounded him. To be sure, they were very painful episodes. There always does seem to be collateral damage when we have pain. My point is, though, that no one makes a straight line progression in the spiritual walk. Almost everyone that I've ever heard of has a progression that is altered or interrupted from time to time. Certainly David did. The graph that I show you on the board only has one interruption. We have dozens and dozens and dozens over the course of our lifetime. But the goal would be to have an upward progression in our spiritual life. That's what we want. It's not necessarily what always happens. It is possible to have a downward retrogression in one's spiritual life. Now, that is not necessarily agreed to by all. Many believe that this is the only chart for a true believer. That it has, even if there are a few bumps in the road, that it will continually be movement toward maturity. That's simply not the biblical case. The biblical case is that there can be bumps in the road that knock us off kilter and end up interrupting our spiritual life so that our, unfortunately, our spiritual life will at least end up looking something like this. There is a great biblical example of someone whose spiritual life ends up like this. Saul's one of them, I think. Solomon's another. Solomon might have had a slight little uptick at the end, but his, the graph of his spiritual life, if there is such a thing, is actually a, a mirror opposite of his father, David. We want this kind of spiritual life. This is what I believe David had. He wasn't a progression from the time he says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that talks the armies of the living God, to the time he takes his last breath. It was not an uninterrupted progression. The star that I've got up here is, I think, where David is right about the time that First uh, Samuel chapter 20 opens. He's on a high but he's just about to slip off into a little bit of a low. We're only going to see hints of it tonight, but that's what we have to grow to be sensitive to in our spiritual lives. We need to be sensitive to those subtle changes in ourselves that might trigger the fact that we're about to go into a retrogression rather than a progression. And we're going to see two very slight, subtle things in, in chapter 20. On first glance, it hardly even looks like anything. In fact, if we didn't have chapter 21, what happens in chapter 21, we might not have been able to pick them out. But there are two little things that show that David could go either way in this chapter. In the next chapter, we're going to see that he takes a little bit of a, a dip. This is what we want, though. We want a progression, even with its dips, we want a progression from spiritual immaturity to spiritual maturity. Over the next 10 years of David's life, He's going to have a series of ups and downs. The whole time he's running from Saul, it's going to be a series of ups and downs. He'll have a failure. For example, in chapter 21, I think he's going to have a fairly significant failure. Then right after that, he writes two psalms. Psalm 34 is among them. We'll study that. Where even after the failure, he writes this incredible song. So he is a believer, and he can recover. You know, you can recover from failure in the spiritual life. I don't care what the failure is, and I mean that. I don't care what the failure is. You can recover if there's still time, with one exception. 
I should always mention this. Hebrews chapter 6 does seem to say that there is a point in time for the one who is truly a believer that they can cross a line for which there's no turning back. I think that's the same thing that John is referring to when he talks about the sin that leads unto death. So there is that one case when you walk out of fellowship for so long and so intensely that God says, okay, that's it, I'm calling you home. But aside from that, if you're still alive and still have time to confess and repent, which is, doesn't take very long, then there is hope for you with regard to the spiritual life. David is going to do some great things over these next, at least in the text, the next 10 years in the text. And then he's going to do some things that make us wonder what in the world was he thinking. And we're going to see a little bit of that tonight, just a tiny bit. I just introduce it tonight. We'll see it in full blossom next week. In chapter 21, we're going to see David do what many people do who are enormously talented when they get into a spiritual bind. You know what they do? They do everything they can to handle it themselves. The, the more talented you are, the more tempting I think it is to try to handle problems yourself and not turn it over to God. And that's exactly what he's going to do. David was human. He has a sinful nature. And he shows that sinful nature from time to time. But I think that's wonderful. That's the difference between the Bible and other ancient literature. The Bible makes no effort. The Holy Spirit moving these authors, these human authors, authors, makes no effort whatsoever to hide the flaws of its major characters. There's only one character in the Bible that has no flaws, and that's Jesus Christ. But everybody else, from Moses, Abraham, David, Elijah, all these, all these greats of the Old Testament have their flaws. Look at the New Testament. Every one of the disciples ran. That's not a great show of friendship and integrity and courage. Every one of them runs when Jesus is arrested. Now, granted, John comes back, but, but all of them run. Peter, his best friend, arguably his best friend on earth, denies him three times. Paul's a murderer. And then even when he is not a murderer, he seems like he had a bit of a temper when he dealt with some of the churches. All these so-called greats of the scripture also have flaws that are recorded. So the Bible is very clear. We're all human, and we all fail. Just because you fail, it doesn't mean that it's over. Oh, I've talked with so many people over the last 17 years of my ministry, so many people that came to me and thought that they had failed so badly that there was no recovery for them. My answer to them is always the same thing. Are you alive right now? Then let's, let's let you have some time to go to God, confess that sin, and let's talk about it. Let's turn away from whatever that is. Let's get, the spirit, let's get your spiritual life back on track. And whatever time it is that God has given you remaining on this earth, make it the best you can possibly make it. And then he'll let everything wash out at the judgment seat of Christ. You don't have to worry about that. You're going to get the grace. It's not over till it's over. You've you got to finish. I, be, I believe in finishing things. I believe in finishing sporting events. And I believe in finishing academic, uh, academic endeavors. I believe in finishing the spiritual life strongly. That's the biblical mandate. We're supposed to finish this way. No one wants failure for themselves or anyone else in the spiritual life. No, no one that has any love to it at all. We all want to succeed, and I want to see you succeed. 
And I hope you want to see me and the people around you succeed. You do know that your success in the spiritual life is not going to mean someone else's failure. It's not like if you make a buck, somebody else has to lose a buck. No, we can all get the well done. And then we ought to want it for everybody. David's human. He's got a sinful nature, and he definitely shows it from time to time. The thing about David is he's never happy when he does. It's never like he's a proud sinner. Eventually, David always confessed and repented. We shouldn't make the mistake of equating spiritual maturity with sinless perfection. That's a myth. There are some people, and I think, even though I love Wesley, I I think Wesley might have been somewhat responsible for part of this. And that is that he developed this idea that there would be a point in time when we were holy. Wesley's draft would have looked differently. Wesley founded the Methodist Church. Of course, Wesley wouldn't recognize the Methodist Church today. I'm sorry, no, no offense, but he wouldn't. Wesley's draft wouldn't have looked like this. It would have been a straight line progression, then straight up, horizontal, and then straight vertical. But there would be a time when one attained perfect holiness, or at least something very close to it. The Bible doesn't speak of that either. But we ought not to make the mistake of equating spiritual maturity with sinless perfection. Again, there's only one person with a capital T that's ever lived that was sinless, and that's Jesus Christ. It wasn't David. It wasn't you, and it wasn't me. It's Jesus Christ, the only one. I don't say all this to give anyone an excuse for failure or an excuse to sin. It almost offends me that I even have to say that. But I'm sure I have to because if I don't, someone's going to misunderstand. Or even worse, someone's going to, at a later time, try to label me antinomian. Well, the comfort is I know God's going to take care of those people that do that. That is not what we're talking about. We're talking about grace. The Bible says that anybody that says they don't sin is a liar. Anybody outside of Jesus Christ. Anybody. Even the most mature believer sins. Again, no excuses. I'm not encouraging you to do it. The Bible says there's discipline for people, for, for us when we sin. Of course, it also says if I'll confess the sin, if I judge myself, then I'm not going to be judged. So I would advise, be quick to do it. But God loves us, and he's going to discipline us when we need it. But we all fail from time to time. That's true. If you fall for the lie that the spiritual life is a straight line progression or even an automatic progression from immaturity to maturity, that there's no possibility of failure, or if you do fail, you might not be saved at all, that's terrible teaching, you'll be constantly rocked and shocked by your own sin, and then you'll forget the grace of God. You started off in your Christian life with the grace of God. I did. Why is it that when we get in the bind as a Christian, all of a sudden we think we have no more need for grace? What kind of person reaches a point in their spiritual life when they think that failure is no longer a possibility? What kind of person does that? You know what kind of person does that? The person's about to fail. As soon as you start thinking, well, I have achieved a point where I can rest now. I'm at this plateau. I've I'm as mature as I'm going to be. No chance for failure for me. Watch out. Because you're, you're ready to fall. You cannot outsend the grace of God. 
but that doesn't mean that we should try. No rational person would do that. And there's severe discipline for those who choose to go that way. But there's another truth that we need to remember tonight, and that is we never outgrow the need for the grace of God. Never. The grace of God is not just something for us to get us into a relationship with our Savior, with, with the Father. That's, that's not where grace stops. That's where it starts. Grace actually is costly. I do agree with Bonhoeffer. Costly grace. I agree with that. I don't agree with the application he made from that. Grace costs God a lot. But grace is free to us. By definition, grace is free to us. But it's not just something that we have when we're just getting started out. When I'm an immature believer, I needed grace. But now that I'm a mature believer, oh, I don't need grace anymore. Well, heaven forbid. We never outgrow the need for the grace of God. And if there's one thing, two or three things, but if there's at least one thing that I want us to remember and learn from David, it's that. He needed grace at the beginning, and bless his heart, he needed grace when he was 70, about to go home to be with the Lord. He needed it his whole life. We need it every day. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. They are new every day. Great is thy faithfulness every single day. If Jeremiah could say that, don't you think we could say it too? We need his grace every single day. David had his failures. Some were great, some were small. But David loved God, and he appreciated his chesed, his grace, his mercy, his loyal love, his tender love. And if you want one of the keys, the secrets to David's spiritual life, that's it. The key to David's spiritual life is not that he didn't sin, because I've got to tell you, if we were to let some people put David on some sort of chart, there's a lot of Christians out there who would say, well, I guess he must have been a believer since he wrote all those psalms, but I'll tell you what, he murdered and he committed adultery. He must have been a failure in his spiritual life. Anybody that's a legalist out there, I hate to disappoint you, but no, he was. He did some terrible things, and we would never gloss over those. The scriptures don't gloss over them. Scriptures are right up front. Terrible things he did. And as best as I can count up the chronology, he suffered discipline from the Lord for 10 years. Approximately 10 years after the Bathsheba incident, if we could call it that. He suffered. He suffers greatly. David would never, never, ever say it was worth it. He would never, ever say God gave him a license to sin, but he would say that I love Yahweh, and I love his chesed. I love his grace, and, his, and I love his mercy, and I love it deeply, and I don't care what you think. What I care is what God thinks about me, and I know that God loves me, and I know that you're shooting, shooting arrows, and those arrows are going to come back and boomerang right on you because you've got sin too, but I know what kind of sin I've committed. Of course, he didn't know it at the time, but now if, he, if we could talk to him up in heaven, he could also probably say, yeah, and I know it's recorded forever. Everybody knows it. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm kind of glad my, most of my sins anyway are not going to be even, even known in heaven. But David's one of those guys that everything he ever did, at least the big ones, always known. But you know what the good thing is going to be? Nobody, nobody is going to walk past David in heaven and think, well, yeah, he's up there, but you know what he did? not going to happen. It's not going to happen. And it's not going to happen to you either. 
because the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin, continually cleanses us from all sin. When God sees us, he does not see that sin. He sees the blood of Christ that covers that sin. Now, who in their right mind would use that as a license to sin? I, I, I ask you this. Who in their right mind would do it? Nobody. Nobody that loves God. Nobody that understands the first thing about the cross would ever say, well, the blood of Christ is going to cover it. I can do whatever I want to it. You realize he suffered for that. David knew it, even if we don't. In chapter 19 of 1 Samuel, Saul, King Saul, had abandoned all pretense and sent men to kill David at his home. The attempt failed as the Lord used the deception of Michal, his wife, to give him an opportunity to escape. You'll recall that David fled to Samuel at Ramah, only to be pursued there, first by Saul's men, and then by Saul himself. And you'll recall it's almost a comical episode that Saul ends up prophesying, whatever that ends up being, perhaps maybe even singing, according to Stephen Bramer, Dallas Finray. He, he has done some decent work to show that might even be singing, but he does it naked on the ground. It's like, it's like God stripped all the accoutrements of royalty off of him and showed him, no, 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 no. You're not coming after my anointing. That's how that chapter ended. God had stymied the effort. When chapter 20 opens, David finds Jonathan. He seeks out Jonathan, and he's confused. What have I done to deserve this, David is going to say. Now, here's, here's where we are with just that hint. Just a hint that something might be about to go wrong. And once we get to chapter 21, we see that this was one of the first ones. There's a hint of a pity party here. We don't really see this. David is not really justifying himself so much. Jonathan doesn't need that. But he said, what did I do? What did I do to deserve all of this? Look at chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. Then David fled from Naoth in Ramah and came and said to Jonathan, what have I done? What is my iniquity? What is my sin? What is my sin before your father that he is seeking my life? And he said to him, Far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. So why should my father hide this thing from me? It's not so. What's happening here is David has sought out Jonathan. I'm sure there's more to the conversation than what occurred here. But David's saying, Listen, what's with your dad? What have I done to him? What did I ever do to him? And Jonathan says, No, no, no. You don't know my dad. Dad's just having a bad day. Dad has no intention of killing you because he doesn't do anything without telling me first. If he was going to kill you, if he really was, he would have tell me. He would tell me first. David's got to be scratching his head, thinking, "Jonathan, what planet are you living on? The man's already thrown a spear at me twice. He sent men to kill me at my house when he couldn't find me there. He sent men to kill me at Ramah, and then when they wouldn't kill me, he came to kill me himself." Now that's not in the text, but I think that's all implied here. Certainly, we know that that's what happened. Apparently, the event that occurred at the end of chapter 19, the whole idea with the Holy Spirit overpowering not only the men but Saul, apparently those events calmed down Saul just a bit. And now Saul, almost unbelievably, expects David to return to his court. Now, we look at that, and we want to shake David and say, don't go back. We also have... we're. We have the benefit of having the next few chapters to know exactly what Saul's going to do. But there's a reason David is contemplating going back into the court. For one thing, Saul's still the king. 
and he is a servant of Saul. Part other thing, Saul's still his father-in-law. He's married to Saul's daughter. If there's a way to work this out, David's going to try to work that out. That's why he's talking to Jonathan at all. That's not why he's down in Moab somewhere or maybe on top of Masada hiding out. David is young, but he's learning. So he's going to go to Jonathan to see if he can figure out what in the world is going on here. Is this real, this idea that Saul really doesn't want to kill me anymore, or is this just some sort of ruse, another attempt to kill him? But Jonathan's convinced, you know, he's wrong about it, as we'll see as the chapter concludes. He's convinced that his dad really doesn't want to kill him. We know better. But David and Jonathan come up with a plan that's going to involve Jonathan, who's still trusted by his father, to try to find out what Saul's true intentions are. Not because Jonathan really thinks they need to find out, but because David, as a friend, is asking him, listen, I got this plan. If you'll please just do this, I need to know if your dad's going to kill me or not. In a way, this chapter really, from this point on, is as much about Jonathan as it is about David. And, and I'm happy about that. Jonathan's a great character builder, but he really is. There's a lot to him. But basically, the plan goes like this. David is expected to attend a dinner that's given at Saul's residence marking the new moon. This new moon festival is generally a very festive occasion. It's a fun occasion. People really like to go. And David's absence is going to be no noticed. Anybody that's anybody, that's anybody should be at this, at this party. So the plan is this. David's not going to go, purposely not going to go. David's going to say, I'm going to Bethlehem, which he's actually not doing. He's going to go to Bethlehem, and let's see what Saul's reaction is when David doesn't show up. Whatever the reaction is, and there's this plan about it, Jonathan is then going to come tell David about it. If Saul notices that David's not there at the dinner table, then he's one of the big shots of the army. It's going to be real noticeable that he's not there. Everybody else is. But if Saul notices that David's not there and says, where's David? Then Jonathan's going to say, well, David went home to celebrate with his family. Basically, that's it. He's got a family problem. He had to go home for a while. If Saul's reaction is neutral, something, oh, okay, sorry to hear that. Hope everything's okay. We'll see him when he gets back. Then David's going to assume everything's okay. But if Saul gets mad that David's not there, then David knows that this whole thing's been faked that there's been no fundamental change in Saul, and that Saul wants to kill him. The whole thing about Bethlehem, going to Bethlehem, is a lie. We have to recognize that. It's unlike the Charles lie previously, I don't think I can make a real strong case that this is a righteous lie. So again, this, this is just one more little chink in the plan. Maybe not a big one, but it is a crack. And the thing about cracks is they tend to get big. So he has to watch. Verses 12 and 13, Jonathan appealed to the Lord in an oath, indicating the seriousness of this situation. In verse 12, Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if there's a good feeling toward David, shall I not then send to you and make it known to you? If it please my father to do to, you, to do you harm, may the Lord do so to Jonathan, and more also, if I do not make it known to you, 
and send you away that you may go in safety. And may the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. These verses clearly indicate that Jonathan believes that David someday is going to be king. And he's going to subdue all his enemies. Look at verses 14 and 15. And if I'm still alive, will you not show me loving kindness of the Lord that I may not die? And you shall not cut off your loving kindness, your hesped, for my house forever. Not even when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. Jonathan knew he finally was king. He knew it's David's going to be king. And so in spite of this, if, if Jonathan was another man, he would have let his father kill David. So he could be king. That's not Jonathan. Jonathan's a wonderful king. Jonathan, like David, had come to appreciate God's hesed. I think that's why their souls were knit together. They both appreciated the same thing. And now he calls upon David to respond to his family in kind. God is showing you hesed. He's shown me hesed. After we're gone, I'm counting on you, David, to show hesed to my family. And David does. A man named Mephibosheth. It'll come up way later in our narrative. And David's going to show him the kindness. David doesn't forget a promise that he made. Jonathan doesn't forget a promise, and David doesn't forget a promise. Previously, David and Jonathan had made a covenant that Jonathan is going to yield the, yield the throne to David and he's going to support him. That was back in chapter 18, verses 3 and 4. Now David promised not to kill Jonathan's descendants after David becomes king. Why is that important? We live in a place where you have one president maybe for four years and then maybe eight years and then another one comes in. Well, when the new one comes in, they don't off the previous president. <laughs> know all his family, know all the people that worked for him. But back then, they did. They didn't want any rivals to the throne. And boy, there's all kind of intrigue in, in, in the ancient world and in the not-so-ancient world when it comes to monarchs. These people get killed all the time. But it was common in the ancient Near East for kings who began a new dynasty to kill all the descendants of the former king to keep them from rising up and wanting to claim the throne. They didn't want any rivals. But David is not going to do that. He's different. When the time came... Saul does indeed miss David, and he does ask where he was. When Jonathan gave the prearranged answer, Saul goes nuts and accuses Jonathan of being in alliance with David. That's where we pick up the narrative in verse 30. Then Saul's anger burned against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman. I love the way the various translations try to handle that. There are some that are much more explicit that are probably closer to being right that I'll spare you, but this is not a compliment either to Jonathan or to Jonathan's mama. This is not a compliment at all. This just shows how mad he was. You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you're choosing the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? Now, he can't insult his son any more than that. In Hebrew thought, that's as bad as you're going to get in insulting someone's family. For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Therefore now send and bring him to me, for he must surely die. Saul is such a hypocrite. 
You see what he just did? He shifted all this to his son. I'm just doing this for you. All this, I'm just, all this I've done is just for you. No, it's not just for the son. It's for him too. He wants David dead because he wants to stay the king. But Jonathan answered Saul, his father, and said to him, Why should he be put to death? What has he done? Then Saul hurled his spear to strike him down. So Jonathan knew that his father had decided to put David to death. This man tried to kill his own son. Then Jonathan arose from the table in fierce anger and did not eat the food on the second day of the new moon, for he was grieved over David because his father had dishonored him. Jonathan shows great character here. It was not the expedient thing to do for him to stand up to his father on David's behalf, but it was the right thing to do. It wasn't expedient, but it's right, and that's integrity. That's a picture of integrity. Integrity is doing the right thing, not because you think you might benefit from it, but simply because it's right. That's integrity, and Jonathan has it. David does too, but Jonathan is exhibiting it here. The mature believer will not sacrifice integrity for the sake of expediency. And that's really what this passage is about. The mature believer will not sacrifice integrity for the sake of expediency. Jonathan wanted very much to honor his father. But his father's behavior made it impossible here. Sometimes you have to honor your father by doing the right thing, even if it means going up against your father on some particular issue. But yes, the Bible does say, honor your mother and your father. But the believer's first loyalty is to his heavenly father. If there ever is a question of loyalty, do I even need to say it? You've got to choose God. And that's what Jonathan is doing here. His father is wrong. His father is dead wrong. His father's been wrong for a while. Jonathan's just now coming to see it, really, I think. The believer's primary loyalty to is, is to either his or her heavenly father. If there is a conflict, we must do what is right before our heavenly father and then let the chips fall where they may. That may be the best thing we can do for our earthly father or mother or whoever it may be. Do the right thing. Well, now the ruse is carried out in verses 35 through 40. Now it came about in the morning that Jonathan went out into the field for the appointment with David, and a little lad was with him. And he said to his lad, Run and find the arrows which I'm about to shoot. David had a prearranged idea that he was going to be waiting in the field to see what the answer would be. So verse 36 again, he said to his lad, run now, find the arrows which I'm about to shoot. And then as the lad was running, he shot an arrow past him. When the lad reached the place of the arrow which Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called after the lad and said, is not the arrow beyond you? That was their secret code word. If Jonathan says, is not the arrow beyond you, then it's not good. Jonathan called after the lad, hurry, be quick, do not stay. And Jonathan's lad picked up the arrow, and came to his master. But the lad was not aware of anything. Only Jonathan and David knew about the matter. David hasn't shown himself yet. He's still hiding. Then Jonathan gave his weapons to the lad and said, and go bring them to the city. Verse 41, when the lad was gone, 
David rose from the south side and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times, and they kissed each other and wept together, but David more. David bowing down three times is indicative of his recognition of Jonathan's covenant superiority as the son of the current king. David is not king yet. He will be. But it's no small thing that David expresses humility here. Now, in the ancient Near East back then, and in the ancient Near East and Far East today, that's still how they show humility. If you want to show a greeting to an equal in an Asian culture, you bow to them and you look at them at the same time. If you want to demonstrate that the other person has a position of superiority over you, you bow at them and you look at the ground. You don't keep your eye on them. David is bowing, expressing a very old custom that is still in effect today in some parts of the world. He's bowing three times, expressing humility. He has been anointed as the future king of Israel. He's not the king of Israel right now. And that's one of the wonders of David. He always keeps that straight. He never gets the cart before the horse. He knows he's going to be king, but it's not the right time now. And even though he's only about 20 at this time, he still has enough maturity to wait on God's timing. He's going to be king. But he's going to have to wait. The emotion that is expressed here reveals the depth of the friendship between these two men. It's a friendship that developed fairly quickly. But they had so much in common, I believe. Especially their relationship toward Yahweh and their relationship toward Yahweh's hesed, his mercy, his kindness, his grace, his loyal love. They developed a very deep relationship in a short time. And apart from one very brief meeting that occurred in 1 Samuel chapter 23, verses 16 through 18, this is the last time these two are going to see each other. This chapter is as much about the integrity of Jonathan as it is about David. Jonathan does the right thing, not because it is expedient, but because it's the right thing. The mature believer will not sacrifice integrity. 